CD9 The scream came from the audience. The Duke was half risen from his seat, his tortured knuckles in his mouth. As they watched, he lurched forward between the shocked people. No! I did not do it! It was not like that! You cannot say it was like that! You were not there! He stared at the upturned faces around him and sagged. Nor was I! He giggled. I was asleep at the time, you know, I remember it quite well. There was blood on the counterpane, there was blood on the floor. I could not wash off the blood. But these are not proper subjects for the inquiry. I cannot allow the discussion of national security. It was just a dream. And when I awoke, he'd be alive tomorrow. And tomorrow, it wouldn't have happened because it was not done. And tomorrow, you can say, I did not know. And tomorrow, you can say, I had no recollection. What a noise he made in falling, enough to wake the dead. Who'd have thought he had so much blood in him? By now, he had climbed onto the stage and grinned brightly at the assembled company. I hope that sorts it all out, he said. <laughs> in the silence that followed... Tom John opened his mouth to utter something suitable, something soothing, and found that there was nothing he could say. But another personality stepped into him, took over his lips, and spoke thusly. With my own bloody dagger, you bastard! I know it was you! I saw you at the top of the stairs, sucking your thumb. I'd kill you now, except for the thought of having to spend eternity listening to your whining. I, Varence, formerly king of... What testimony is this? said the Duchess. She stood in front of the stage with half a dozen soldiers beside her. These are just slanders, she added. And treason to boot, the rantings of mad players. I was bloody king of Lancre, shouted Tom John. In which case you are the alleged victim, said the Duchess calmly and unable to speak for the prosecution. It is against all precedent. Tom John's body turned towards death. You were there. You saw it all. I suspect I would not be considered an appropriate witness. Therefore, there is no proof, and where there is no proof, there is no crime, said the Duchess. She motioned the soldiers forward. So much for your experiment she said to her husband. I think my way is better. She looked around the stage and found the witches. Arrest them, she said. No, said the fool, stepping out of the wings. What did you say? I saw it all, said the fool simply. I was in the great hall that night. You killed the king, my lord. I did not screamed the Duke. You are not there. I did not see you there. I order you not to be there. You did not dare say this before, said Lady Felmont. Yes, Lady, but I must say it now. The Duke focused unsteadily on him. You swore loyalty unto death, my fool, he hissed. Yes, my lord, I'm sorry. You're dead, 
The Duke snatched a dagger from Wimslow's unresisting hand, darted forward and plunged it to the hilt into the fool's heart. McGrath screamed. The fool rocked back and forth unsteadily. Thank goodness that's over, he said, as McGrath pushed her way through the actors and clasped him to what could charitably be called her bosom. It struck the fool that he had never looked at a bosom squarely in the face, at least since he was a baby, and it was particularly cruel of the world to save the experience until after he was dead. He gently moved one of McGrath's arms and pulled the despicable horned cowl from his head and tossed it as far as possible. He didn't have to be a fool anymore, or, he realised, bother about vows or anything. What with bosoms as well, death seemed to be an improvement. I didn't do it, said the Duke. No pain, thought the fool. Funny that. On the other hand, you obviously can't feel pain when you are dead. It would be wasted. You all saw that I didn't do it, said the Duke. Death gave the fool a puzzled look. Then he reached into the recesses of his robe and pulled out an hourglass. It had bells on it. He gave it a gentle shake, which made them tinkle. I gave no orders that any such thing should be done, said the Duke calmly. His voice came from a long way off, from wherever his mind was now. The company stared at him wordlessly. It wasn't possible to hate someone like this, only to feel acutely embarrassed about being anywhere near him. Even the fool felt embarrassed and he was dead. Death tapped the hourglass and then peered at it to see if it had gone wrong. You're all lying, said the Duke in tranquil tones. Telling lies is naughty. He stabbed several of the nearest actors in a dreamy, gentle way, and then held up the blade. You see, he said, no blood. It wasn't me. He looked up at the Duchess, towering over him now like a red tsunami over a small fishing village. It was her, he said. She did it. He stabbed her once or twice on general principles and then stabbed himself and let the dagger drop from his fingers. After a few seconds' reflection, he said in a voice far nearer the worlds of sanity, You can't get me now. He turned to death. Will there be a comet? He said. There must be a comet when a prince dies. I'll go and see, shall I? He wandered away. The audience broke into applause. You've got to admit, he was real royalty, said Nanny Og, eventually. It only goes to show royalty goes eccentric far better than the likes of you and me. Death held the hourglass to his skull, his face radiating puzzlement. Granny Weatherwax picked up the fallen dagger and tested the blade with her finger. It slid into the handle quite easily with a faint squeaking noise. She passed it to Nanny. There's your magic sword, 
she said. McGrath looked at it, and then back at the fool. Are you dead or not? she said. I must be, said the fool, his voice slightly muffled. I think I'm in paradise. No, look, I'm serious. I don't know, but I like to breathe. Then you must be alive. Everyone's alive, said Granny. It's a trick dagger. Actors probably can't be trusted with real ones. After all, they can't even keep a cauldron clean, said Nanny. Whether everyone is alive or not is a matter for me, said the Duchess. As ruler, it is my pleasure to decide. Clearly my husband has lost his wits. She turned to her soldiers. And I decree... Now, hissed King Lorenz in Granny's ear. Now! Granny Weatherwax drew herself up. Be silent, woman, she said. The true King of Lancras stands before you. She clapped Tom John on the shoulder. What, him? Who, me? Ridiculous, said the Duchess. He's a mama of sorts. She's right, miss, said Tom John on the edge of panic. My father runs a theatre, not a kingdom. He is the true king. We can prove it, said Granny. Oh, no, said the Duchess. We're not having that. There's no mysterious returned heirs in this kingdom. Guards, take him. Granny Weatherwax held up a hand. The soldiers lurched from foot to foot uncertainly. He's a witch, isn't she? said one of them tentatively. Certainly, said the Duchess. The guards shifted uneasily. We've seen where they turn people into newts, said one. And then shipwreck them. Yeah, and alarm the divers. Yeah. We ought to talk about this. We ought to get extra for witches. She could do anything to us, look. She could be a drab, even. Don't be foolish, said the Duchess. Witches don't do that sort of thing. They're just stories to frighten people. The guard shook his head. It looked pretty convincing to me. Of course it did. It was meant, the Duchess began. She sighed and snatched a spear out of the guard's hand. I'll show you the power of these witches, she said, and hurled it at Granny's face. Granny moved her hand across at snake-bite speed and caught the spear just behind the head. So, she said, and it comes to this, does it? You don't frighten me, weird sisters, said the Duchess. Granny stared her in the eye for a few seconds. She gave a grunt of surprise. You're right, she said. We really don't, do we? Do you think I haven't studied you? Your witchcraft is all artifice and illusion to amaze weak minds. It holds no fear for me. Do your worst. Granny studied her for a while. My worst, she said eventually. McGrath and Nanny Og shuffled gently out of the way. The Duchess laughed. You're clever, <laughs> she said. I'll grant you that much, and quick. Come on, hag. 
Bring on your toads and demons. I'll... She stopped, her mouth opening and shutting a bit without any words emerging. Her lips drew back in a rictus of terror. Her eyes looked beyond Granny, beyond the world, towards something else. One knuckled hand flew to her mouth and she made a little whimpering noise. She froze like a rabbit that had just seen a stoat and knows, without any doubt, that this is the last stoat that it will ever see. "'What have you done to her?' said Nagrat, the first to dare to speak. Granny smirked. "'Edology,' said Granny, and smirked. "'You don't need any Black Alice magic for it.' "'Yes, what have you done?' No one becomes like she is without building walls inside her head, she said. I've just knocked them down. Every scream, every plea, every pang of guilt, every twinge of conscience, all at once. There's a little trick to it. She gave McGrath a condescending smile. I'll show you one day if you like. McGrath thought about it. It's horrible, she said. Nonsense, Granny smiled terribly. Everyone wants to know their true self. Now she does. Sometimes you have to be kind to be cruel, said Nanny Og approvingly. I think it's probably the worst thing that could happen to anyone, said McGrath, as the Duchess swayed backwards and forwards. For goodness sake, use your imagination, girl, said Granny. There are far worse things. Needles under the fingernails, for one. Stuff with pliers. Red-hot knives up the jacksy, said Nanny Og. Handle first, too, so you can cut your fingers trying to pull them out. This is simply the worst that I can do, said Granny Weatherwax primly. It's all right and proper, too. A witch should act like that, you know. There's no need for any dramatic stuff. Most magic goes on in the head. It's headology. Now, if you... A noise like a gas leak escaped from the Duchess's lips. Her head jerked back suddenly. She opened her eyes, blinked, and focused on Granny. Sheer hatred suffused her features. Guards! she said. I told you to take them! Granny's jaw sagged. What? she said. But, but I showed you your true self. I'm supposed to be upset by that, am I? As the soldiers sheepishly grabbed Granny's arms, the Duchess pressed her face close to Granny's, her tremendous eyebrows a V of triumphant hatred. I'm supposed to grovel on the floor, is that it? Well, old woman... I've seen exactly what I am, do you understand? And I'm proud of it. I'll do it all again, only hotter and longer. I enjoyed it, and I did it because I wanted to. She thumped the vast expanse of her chest. You gulping idiots, she said. You're so weak. You really think that people are basically decent underneath it, don't you? The crowd on the stage backed away from the sheer force of her exultation. Well, I've looked underneath, 
said the Duchess. I know what drives people. It's fear. Sheer, deep-down fear. There's not one of you who doesn't fear me. I can make you whittle your drawers out of terror, and now I'm going to take... At this point, Nanny Og hit her on the back of the head with the cauldron. She does go on, doesn't she? She said conversationally as the Duchess collapsed. She was a bit eccentric, if you ask me. There was a long, embarrassed silence. Granny Weatherwax coughed. Then she treated the soldiers holding her to a bright, friendly smile and pointed to the mound that was now the Duchess. Take her away and put her in a cell somewhere, she commanded. The men snapped to attention grabbed the Duchess by her arms and pulled her upright with considerable difficulty. Gently, mind, said Granny. She rubbed her hands together and turned to Tom John, who was watching her with his mouth open. Depend upon it, she hissed. Here and now, my lad, you don't have a choice. You're the King of Lancre. But I don't know how to be a king. We all seed you. You had it down just right, including the shouting. That's just acting. Act, then. Being a king is... is... Granny hesitated and snapped her fingers at McGrath. What do you call them things? There's always a hundred of them in anything. McGrath looked bewildered. Do you mean percents? She said. Them, agreed Granny. Most of the percents in being a king is acting, if you ask me. You ought to be good at it. Tom John looked for help into the wings, where Hal should have been. The dwarf was in fact there, but he wasn't paying much attention. He had the script in front of him and was rewriting furiously. But I assure you, you are not dead. Take it from me. The Duke giggled. He had found a sheet from somewhere and had draped it over himself and was sidling along some of the castle's more deserted corridors. Sometimes he would go in a low voice. This worried death. He was used to people claiming that they were not dead because death always came as a shock and a lot of people had some trouble getting over it but people claiming that they were dead with every breath in their body was a new and unsettling experience. I shall jump out on people, said the Duke dreamily. I shall rattle my bones all night. I shall perch on the roof and foretell death in the house. That's banshees. I shall if I want, said the Duke, with a trace of earlier determination. And I shall float through walls and knock on tables and drip ectoplasm on anyone I don't like. <laughs> it won't work. Living people aren't allowed to be ghosts. I'm sorry. The Duke made an unsuccessful attempt to float through a wall, gave up, and opened a door out to a crumbling section of the battlements. The storm had died away a bit, and a thin rind of moon lurked behind the clouds like a ticket tout for eternity. Death stalked through the wall behind him. Well then, said the Duke, if I'm not dead, 
Why are you here? He jumped up on the wall and flapped his sheet. Waiting. Wait forever, Boneface, said the Duke triumphantly. I shall hover in the twilight world. I shall find some chains to shake. I shall. He stepped backwards, lost his balance, landed heavily on the wall and slid. For a moment, the remnant of his right hand scrabbled ineffectually at the stonework and then vanished. Death is obviously potentially everywhere at the same time, and in one sense it is no more true to say that he was on the battlements, picking vaguely at non-existent particles of glowing metal on the edge of his scythe blade, than that he was waist-deep in the foaming, rock-toothed waters in the depths of L'Oncre Gorge, his calcareous gaze sweeping downwards and stopping abruptly at the point where the torrent ran a few treacherous inches over a bed of angular pebbles. After a while, the Duke sat up, transparent in the phosphorescent waves. I shall halt the corridors, he said, and whisper under the doors on still nights. His voice grew fainter, almost lost in the ceaseless roar of the river. I shall make basket chairs creak most alarmingly. Just you wait and see. Death grinned at him. Now you're talking. It started to rain. Ramtop rain has a curiously penetrative quality, which makes ordinary rain seem almost arid. It poured in torrents over the castle roofs, and somehow seemed to go right through the tiles and fill the great hall with a warm, uncomfortable moistness, like Bogner. The hall was crowded with half the population of Lancre. Outside, the rushing of the rain even drowned out the distant roar of the river. It soaked the stage. The colours ran and mingled in the painted backdrop, and one of the curtains sagged away from its rail and flapped sadly into a puddle. Inside, Granny Weatherwax finished speaking. You forgot about the crown, whispered Nanny Og. Ah, said Granny. Yes, the crown. It's on his head. Do you see? We hid it among the crowns when the actors left, the reason being no one would look for it there. See how it fits him so perfectly. It was a tribute to Granny's extraordinary powers of persuasion that everyone did see how perfectly it fitted Tom John. In fact, the only one who didn't was Tom John himself, who was aware that it was only his ears that were stopping it becoming a necklace. Imagine the sensation when he put it on for the first time, she went on. I expect there was an eldritch tingling sensation. Actually, it felt rather... Tom John began, but no one was listening to him. He shrugged and leaned over to Howell, who was still scribbling busily. Does eldritch mean uncomfortable? He hissed. The dwarf looked at him with unfocused eyes. What? I said, does Eldritch mean uncomfortable? Eh? Oh. No. Oh. No, I shouldn't think so. 
What does it mean, then? Don't know. Oblong, I think. Howell's glance returned to his scrawl as though magnetised. Can you remember what he said after all those tomorrows? I didn't catch the bit after that. And there wasn't any need for you to tell everyone I was adopted, said Tom John. That's how it was, you see, said the dwarf vaguely. Best to be honest about these things. Now then, did he actually stab her or just accuse her? I don't want to be a king, Tom John whispered hoarsely. Everyone says I'll take after Dad. Funny thing, all this taking after people, said the dwarf vaguely. I mean, if I took after my dad, I'd be a hundred feet underground digging rocks, whereas... His voice died away. He stared at the nib of his pen as though it held an incredible fascination. Whereas what? Eh? Aren't you even listening? I knew it was wrong when I wrote it. I knew it was the wrong way round. What? Oh, yes. Be a king. It's a good job. It seems there's a lot of competition at any rate. I'm very happy for you. Once you're a king, you can do anything you want. Tom John looked at the faces of the Lancre worthies around the table. They had a keen, calculating look, like the audience at a fat stock show. They were weighing him up. It crept upon him, in a cold and clammy way, that once he was king, he could do anything he wanted, provided that what he wanted to do was be king. You could build up your own theatre, said Howell, his eyes lighting up for a moment. With as many trapdoors as you wanted, and magnificent costumes, you could act in a new play every night. I mean, it would make the disc look like a shed. Would you come and see me? said Tom John, sagging in his seat. Everyone. What? Every night? You could order them to, said Howell, without looking up. I knew he was going to say that, Tom John thought. He can't really mean it, he added charitably. He's got his play. He doesn't really exist in this world, not right now at the moment. He took off the crown and turned it over and over in his hands. There wasn't much metal in it, but it felt heavy. He wondered how heavy it would get if he wore it all the time. At the head of the table was an empty chair containing, he had been assured, the ghost of his real father. It would have been nice to report that he had experienced anything more, when being introduced to it, than an icy sensation and a buzzing in the ears. I suppose I could help father pay off the disc, he said. That would be nice, yes, said Howell. He spun the crown in his fingers and listened glumly to the talk flowing back and forth over his head. Fifteen years, said the mayor of Loncra. We had to, said Granny Weatherwax. I thought the baker was a bit early last week. No, no, said the witch impatiently. It doesn't work like that. No one's lost anything. According to my figuring, said the man who doubled as Lancre's beadle, town clerk and gravedigger, we've all lost fifteen years. No, 
We've all gained them, said the mayor. Stands to reason. Time's like this sort of wiggly road, see? But we took a shortcut across the fields. Not at all, said the clerk, sliding a sheet of paper across the table. Look here. Tom John let the waters of debate close over him again. Everyone wanted him to be king. No one thought twice about what he wanted. His views didn't count. Yes, that was it. No one wanted him to be king. Not precisely him. He just happened to be convenient. Gold does not tarnish, at least physically. But Tom John felt that the thin band of metal in his hand had an unpleasant depth to its luster. It had sat on too many troubled heads. If you held it to your ear, you could hear the screams. He became aware of someone else looking at him, their gaze playing across his face like a blow lamp on a lolly. He looked up. It was the third witch. The young... the youngest one, with the intense expression and the hedgerow hairstyle, sitting next to old fool, as though she owned a controlling interest. It wasn't his face she was examining, it was his features. Her eyeballs were tracking him from nape to nose like a pair of calipers. He gave her a little brave smile, which she ignored, just like everyone else, he thought. Only the fool noticed him and returned the smile with an apologetic grin and a tiny conspiratorial wave of the fingers that said, What are we doing here, two sensible people like us? The woman was looking at him again, turning her head this way and that and narrowing her eyes. She kept glancing at the fool and back to Tom John. Then she turned to the oldest witch, the only person in the entire hot, damp room who seemed to have acquired a mug of beer, and whispered in her ear. The two started a spirited, whispered conversation. It was, thought Tom John, a particularly feminine way of talking. It normally took place on doorsteps, with all the participants standing with their arms folded, and if anyone was so ungracious as to walk past, they'd stop abruptly and watch them in silence until they were safely out of earshot. He became aware that Granny Weatherwax had stopped talking, and that the entire hall was staring at him expectantly. Hello? he said. It might be a good idea to hold the coronation tomorrow, said Granny. It's not good for a kingdom to be without a ruler. It doesn't like it. She stood up, pushed back her chair, and came and took Tom John's hand. He followed her unprotestingly across the flagstones and up the steps to the throne, where she had put her hands on his shoulders and pressed him gently down onto the threadbare red plush cushions. There was a scraping of benches and chairs. He looked around in panic. What's happening now? he said. Don't worry, said Granny firmly. Everyone wants to come and swear loyalty to you. You just nod graciously and ask everyone what they do and if they enjoy it. Oh, and you'd better give them the crown back. Tom John removed it quickly. Why? he said. They want to present it to you. But I've already got it, said Tom John desperately. Granny gave a patient sigh. Only in the, what's name, real sense, she said. This is more ceremonial. You mean unreal, 
Yes, said Granny, but much more important. Tom John gripped the arms of the throne. Fetch me, Howell, he said. No, you must do it like that. It's precedent, you see. First you meet the... I said, fetch me the dwarf. Didn't you hear me, woman? This time, Tom John got the spin and pitch of his voice just right, but Granny rallied magnificently. I don't think you quite realize who you are talking to, young man, she said. Tom John half rose in his seat. He had played a great many kings, and most of them weren't the kind of kings who shook hands graciously and asked people whether they enjoyed their work. They were far more the type of kings who got people to charge into battle at five o'clock on freezing mornings, and still managed to persuade them that this was better than being in bed. He summoned them all and treated Granny Weatherwax to a blast of royal hauteur, pride and arrogance. We thought we were talking to a subject, he said. Now, do as we say. Granny's face was immobile for several seconds as she worked out what to do next. Then she smiled to herself, said lightly, As you wish, and went and dislodged Howell, who was still writing. The dwarf gave a stiff bow. None of that, snapped Tom John. What do I do next? I don't know. Do you want me to write an acceptance speech? I told you I don't want to be king. Would be a problem with an acceptance speech then, the dwarf agreed. You really thought about this. Being king is a great role. But it's the only one you get to play. Hmm. Well, just tell them no then. Just like that? Will it work? It's got to be worth a try. A group of Lancre dignitaries were approaching with the crown on a cushion. They wore expressions of constipated respect, coupled with just a hint of self-satisfaction. They carried the crown as if it was a present for a good boy. The mayor of Lancre coughed behind his hand. A proper coronation will take some time to arrange, he began. But we would like... No, said Tom John. The mayor hesitated. Pardon? He said. I won't accept it. The mayor hesitated again. His lips moved and his eyes glazed slightly. He felt that he had got lost somewhere and decided it would be best to start again. A uh, proper coronation will take... He ventured. It won't, said Tom John. I will not be king. The mayor was mouthing like a carp. Howell, said Tom John desperately, you're good with words. The problem we've got here, said the dwarf, is that no is apparently not among the options when you're offered a crown. I think he could cope with maybe. Tom John stood up and grabbed the crown. He held it above his head like a tambourine. Listen to me, all of you, he said. I thank you for your offer. It is a great honour but I can't accept it. I've worn more crowns than you can count, and the only kingdom I know how to rule has got curtains in front of it. I'm sorry. Dead silence greeted this. They did not appear to have been the right words. Another problem, said Howell conversationally, is that you don't actually have a choice. 
You are the king, you see. It's a job you're lined up for when you are born. I'd be no good at it. That doesn't matter. A king isn't something you're good at. It's something you are. You can't leave me here. There's nothing but forests. Tom John felt the suffocating cold sensation again and the slow buzzing in his ears. For a moment, he thought he saw, faint as a mist, a tall, sad man in front of him, stretching out a hand in supplication. I'm sorry, he whispered. I really am. Through the fading shape, he saw the witches watching him intently. Beside him, Howell said, The only chance you'd have is if there was another heir. But you don't remember any brothers and sisters, do you? I don't remember anyone. Howell, I... There was another ferocious argument among the witches, and then McGrath was striding, striding across the hall, moving like a tidal wave, moving like a rush of blood to the head, shaking off Granny Weatherwax's restraining hand, bearing down on the throne like a piston, and dragging the fool behind her. I say... Uh... Helloy! Uh... I say, excuse me, can anyone hear us? The castle up above was full of hubbub and general rejoicing, and there was no one to hear the polite and frantic voices that echoed among the dungeon passages, getting politer and more frantic with each passing hour. Um, I say, excuse me? Billum's got this terrible thing about rats, if you don't mind. Cooey! Let the camera of the mind's eye pan slowly back along the dim, ancient corridors, taking in the dripping fungi, the rusting chains, the damp, the shadows. Can't anyone hear us? Look, this is really too much. There's been some laughable mistake. Look, the wigs come right off. Let the plaintive echoes dwindle among the cobwebbed corners, the rodent-hunted tunnels, until there are no more than a reedy whisper on the cusp of hearing. I say, I say, excuse me, help! Someone is bound to come down here again, one of these days. Sometime afterwards, McGrath asked Howell if he believed in long engagements. The dwarf paused in the task of loading up the latte, at least of supervising the loading. Actual physical assistance was a little difficult because he had, the day before, slipped on something and broken his leg. About a week maximum, he said at last, with matinees, of course. A month went past. The early, damp earth odours of autumn drifted over the velvety dark moors, where the watery starlight was echoed by one spark of fire. The standing stone was back in its normal place, but still poised to run if any auditors came into view. The witches sat in careful silence. This was not going to rate among the hundred most exciting coven meetings of all time. If Mazorsky had seen them, the night on the bare mountain would have been over by tea time. Then Granny Weatherwax said, It was a good banquet, I thought. 
I was nearly sick, said Nanny Og proudly, and my shirl helped out in the kitchen and brought me home some scraps. I heard, said Granny coldly. Half a pig and three bottles of fizzy wine went missing, they say. It's nice that some people think of the old folk, said Nanny Og, completely unabashed. I got a coronation mug, too, she produced it. It says, Viva Varence the Second, Rex. Fancy him being called Rex. I can't say it's a good likeness, mind you. I don't recall him having a handle sticking out of his ear. There was another long, terribly polite pause. Then Granny said, We were a bit surprised you weren't there, Magrat. We thought you'd be up at the top table kind of thing, said Nanny. We thought you'd have moved in up there. Magrat stared fixedly at her feet. I wasn't invited, she said meekly. Well, I don't know about invited, said Granny. We weren't invited. People don't have to invite witches. They just know we'll turn up if we want to. They soon find room for us, she added with some satisfaction. You see, he's been very busy, said Magrat to her feet. Sorting everything out, you know. He's very clever, you know. Underneath. Very sober lad, said Nanny. Anyway, it's full moon, said Magrat quickly. You've got to go to coven meetings at full moon, no matter what other pressing engagements they may be. Have you? Nanny Og began, but Granny nudged her sharply in the ribs. It's a very good thing he's paying so much attention to getting the kingdom working again, said Granny soothingly. It shows proper consideration. I dare say he'll get around to everything sooner or later. It's very demanding being a king. Yes, said Magrat, her voice barely audible. The silence that followed was almost solid. It was broken by Nanny in a voice as bright and brittle as ice. Well, I bought a bottle of that fizzy wine with me, she said. In case he... In case... In case we felt like a drink, she rallied and waved it at the other two. I don't want any, said Magrat sullenly. You drink up, girl, said Granny Weatherwax. It's a chilly night. It'd be good for your chest. She squinted at Magrat as the moon drifted out from behind its cloud. Here, yeah, she said. Your hair looks a bit grubby. It looks as though you haven't washed it for a month. Magrat burst into tears. The same moon shone down on the otherwise unremarkable town of Ram Nitz, some ninety miles from Lancre. Tom John left the stage to thunderous applause at the concluding act of The Troll of Ankh. A hundred people would go home tonight wondering whether trolls were really as bad as they had hitherto thought, although, of course, this wouldn't actually stop them disliking them in any way whatsoever. Howell patted him on the back as he sat down at the makeup table and started scraping off the thick grey sludge that was intended to make him look like a walking rock. Well done, he said. That love scene, just right. And when you turned around and roared at the wizard... 
I shouldn't think there was a dry seat in the house. I know. Howell rubbed his hands together. We can afford a tavern tonight, he said. So if we just... We'll sleep in the carts, said Tom John firmly, squinting at himself in the shard of mirror. But you know how much the full... The king gave us. It could be feather beds all the way home. It's straw mattresses and a good profit for us, said Tom John. And that'll buy you gods from heaven and demons from hell and the wind and the waves and more trapdoors than you can count, my lawn ornament. Howell's hand rested on Tom John's shoulder for a moment. Then he said, You're right, boss. Certainly I am. How's the play going? Huh? What play? said Howell innocently. Tom John carefully removed a plaster brow ridge. You know, he said. That one, the Lancre King. Oh, coming along, coming along, you know. I'll get it right one of these days. Howell changed the subject with speed. You know... We could work our way down the river and take a boat home. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But we could work our way home, overland, and pick up some more cash. That would be better, wouldn't it? Tom John grinned. We took 100 tonight. I counted heads during the judgment speech. That's nearly one silver piece after expenses. You're your father's son and no mistake, said Howell. Tom John sat back and looked at himself in the mirror. Yes, he said. I thought I'd better be. Magrat didn't like cats and hated the idea of mouse traps. She'd always felt that it should be possible to come to some sort of arrangement with creatures like mice so that all available food was rationed in the best interests of all parties. This was a very humanitarian outlook, which is to say that it was not a view shared by mice and therefore her moonlit kitchen was alive. When there was a knocking at the door, the entire floor appeared to rush towards the walls. After a few seconds, the knocking came again. There was another pause. Then the knocking rattled the door on its hinges, and a voice cried, Open in the name of the king! A second voice said in hurt tones, You don't have to shout like that. Why did you shout like that? I didn't order you to shout like that. It's enough to frighten anybody shouting like that. Sorry, sire. It goes with the job, sire. Just knock again a bit more gently, please. The knocking might have been a bit softer. Magrat's apron dropped off its hook on the back of the door. You sure I can't do it myself? It's not done, sire. King's knocking at humble cottage doors. Best leave it to me. Open in the... Sergeant! Sorry, sir. Forgot myself. Try the latch. It was the sound of someone being extremely hesitant. Don't like the sound of that, sire, said the invisible sergeant. Could be dangerous. If you want my advice, sir, I'd set fire to the thatch. Set fire? Yes, sir. We always do that if they don't answer the door. Brings them out a treat. I don't think that would be appropriate, Sergeant. I think I'll try the latch if it's all the same to you. Breaks my heart to see you do it, sir. Well, I'm sorry. 
could at least let me buff it up for you. No. Well, couldn't I just set fire to the privy? Absolutely not. That chicken house over there looks as if it could go up like a... Sergeant! Sir? Go back to the castle. What? Leave you all alone, sir? This is a matter of extreme delicacy, Sergeant. I'm sure you are a man of sterling qualities, but there are times when even a king needs to be alone. It concerns a young woman, you understand. Ah, point taken, sire. Thank you. Help me dismount, please. Sorry about all that, sire. Tap this on me. Don't mention it. If you need any help getting her light. Please, go back to the castle, sergeant. Yes, sire. If you're sure, sire. Thank you, sire. Sergeant? Yes, sir. I shall need someone to take my cap and bells back to the Fool's Guild in Ark Moorpork. Now I'm leaving. It seems to me you're the ideal man. Thank you, sir. Much obliged. It's your... Ah, burning desire to be of service. Yes, sir? Make sure they put you up in one of the guest rooms. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. There was the sound of a horse trotting away. A few seconds later, the latch clonked and the fool crept in. It takes considerable courage to enter a witch's kitchen in the dark, but probably no more than it takes to wear a purple shirt with velvet sleeves and scalloped edges. It had this in its favour, though. There were no bells on it. He had bought a bottle of sparkling wine and a bouquet of flowers, both of which had gone flat during the journey. He laid them on the table and sat down by the embers of the fire. He rubbed his eyes. It had been a long day. He wasn't, he felt, a good king, but he'd had a lifetime of working hard at being something he wasn't cut out to be, and he was persevering. As far as he could see, none of his predecessors had tried at all. So much to do, so much to repair, so much to organise. On top of it all, there was the problem with the Duchess. Somehow, he'd felt moved to put her in a decent cell, in an airy tower. She was a widow, after all. He felt he ought to be kind to widows. But being kind to the Duchess didn't seem to achieve much. She didn't understand it. She thought it was just weakness. He was dreadfully afraid that he might have to have her head cut off. No, being a king was no laughing matter. He brightened up at the thought, but was that to be said about it? And after a while, he fell asleep. The Duchess was not asleep. She was currently halfway down the castle wall on a rope of knotted sheets, having spent the previous day gradually chipping away the mortar around the bars of her window, although, in truth, you could hack your way out of the average Lancre Castle wall with a piece of cheese. The fool. He'd given her cutlery and plenty of bedclothes. That was how these people reacted. They let their fear do their thinking for them. They were scared of her. Even when they thought they had her in their power. And the weak never had the strong in their power. Never truly in their power. If she'd thrown herself in prison she would have found considerable satisfaction in making herself regret she'd ever been born. But they'd just given her blankets and worried about her. Well, 
she'd be back. There was a big world out there, and she knew how to pull the levers that made people do what she wanted. She wouldn't burden herself with a husband this time either. Weak? He was the worst of them. No courage in him to be as bad as he knew he was inside. She landed heavily on the moss, paused to catch her breath, and then, with the knife ready in her hand, slipped away along the castle walls and into the forest. She'd go all the way down to the far border and swim the river there, or maybe build a raft. By morning, she'd be too far away for them ever to find her, and she doubted very much that they'd ever come looking. Weak! She moved through the forest with surprising speed. There were tracks, after all, wide enough for carts, and she had a pretty good sense of direction. Besides, all she needed to do was go downhill. If she found the gorge, then she just had to follow the flow. And then there seemed to be too many trees. There was still a track, and it went more or less in the right direction, but the trees on either side of it were planted rather more thickly than one might expect. And when she tried to turn back, there was no track at all behind her. She took to turning suddenly, half expecting to see the trees moving, but they were always standing stoically and firmly rooted in the moss. She couldn't feel a wind, but there was a sighing in the treetops. All right, she said under her breath. All right, I'm going anyway. I want to go, but I will be back. It was at this point that the track opened out into a clearing that hadn't been there the day before and wouldn't be there tomorrow. A clearing in which the moonlight glittered off assembled antlers and fangs and serried ranks of glowing eyes. The weak, banded together, can be pretty despicable. But it dawned on the Duchess that an alliance of the strong can be more of an immediate problem. There was total silence for a few seconds, broken only by faint panting, and then the Duchess grinned, raised her knife, and charged at the lot of them. The front ranks of the massed creatures opened to let her pass, and then closed in again. Even the rabbits. The kingdom exhaled. On the moors, under the very shadow of the peaks, the mighty nocturnal chorus of nature had fallen silent. The crickets had ceased their chirping, the owls had hooted themselves into silence, and the wolves had other matters to attend to. There was a song that echoed and boomed from cliff to cliff and resounded up the high hidden valleys, causing miniature avalanches. It funneled along the secret tunnels under glaciers, losing all meaning as it rang between the walls of ice. To find out what was actually being sung, you would have to go all the way back down to the dying fire by the standing stone, where the cross resonances and waves of conflicting echoes focused on a small elderly woman who was waving an empty bottle. With a snail, if you slow to a crawl, but the hedgehog. It tastes better at the bottom of the bottle, doesn't it? McGrath said, trying to drown out the chorus. That's right, said Granny, draining her cup. Is there any more? 
I think Geister's finished it by the sound of it. They sat on the fragrant heather and stared up at the moon. Well, we've got a king, said Granny, and there's an end of it. It's thanks to you and Nanny, really, said McGrath and hiccuped. Why? None of them would have believed me if you hadn't spoken up. Only because we was asked, said Granny. Yes, but everyone knows witches don't lie. That's the important thing. I mean, everyone could see they looked so alike. But that could have been coincidence. You see, McGrath blushed. I looked up, Dois de Seigneur. Goody Wimper had a dictionary. Nanny Og stopped singing. Yes, said Granny Weatherwax. Well? McGrath became aware of an uncomfortable atmosphere. You did tell the truth, didn't you? She said. They really are brothers, aren't they? Oh, yes, said Gaither Og. Definitely. I saw to his mother when you're... when the new king was born. And to the queen when young Tom John was born, and she told me who the father was. Gaither? Sorry. The wine was going to her head, but the wheels in McGrath's mind still managed to turn. Just a minute, she said. I remember the fool's father, said Nanny Og, speaking slowly and deliberately. Very personable young man he was. He didn't get on with his dad, you know, but he used to visit sometimes to see old friends. He made friends easily, said Granny. Among the ladies, agreed Nanny. Very athletic, wasn't he? Could climb walls like nobody's business, I remember hearing. He was very popular at court said Granny. I know that much. Oh, yes, with the Queen at any rate. The King used to go out hunting such a lot, said Granny. It was that dwart of his, said Nanny. Always out and about with it, he was. Hardly ever home at night. Just a minute, McGrath repeated. They looked at her. Yes, said Granny. You told everyone they were brothers and that Varence was the older. That's right. And you let everyone believe that... Granny Weatherwax pulled her shawl around her. We're bound to be truthful, she said. But there's no call to be honest. No, no. <laughs> what you're saying is that the King of Loncra isn't really... What I'm saying is, said Granny firmly, that we've got a king who is no worse than most and better than many and who's got his head screwed on right. Even if it is against the thread, said Nanny. And the old king's ghost has been laid to rest happy. There's been an enjoyable coronation. And some of us got mugs we weren't entitled to. Them being only for the kiddies, and all in all, things are a lot more satisfactory than they might be. That's what I'm saying, 
Never mind what should be or what might be or what ought to be. It's what things are that's important. But he's not really a king. He might be, said Nanny. But you just said, who knows? The late queen wasn't very good at counting. Anyway, he doesn't know he isn't royalty. And you're not going to tell him, are you? said Granny Weatherwax. McGrath stared at the moon, which had a few clouds across it. No, she said. Right then, said Granny. Anyway, look at it like this. Royalty has to start somewhere. It might as well start with him. It looks as though he means to take it seriously, which is a lot further than most of them take it. He'll do. McGrath knew she had lost. You always lost against Granny Weatherwax. The only interest was in seeing exactly how. But I'm surprised at the two of you. I really am, she said. You're witches. That means you have to care about things like truth and tradition and destiny, don't you? That's where you've been getting it all wrong, said Granny. Destiny is important, see? But people go wrong when they think it controls them. It's the other way around. Bugger destiny, agreed Nanny. Granny glared at her. After all, you never thought being a witch was going to be easy, did you? I'm learning, said McGrath. She looked across the moor, where a thin rind of dawn glowed on the horizon. I think I'd better be off, she said. It's getting early. Me too, said Nanny Og. Oh, sure, frets if I'm not home when she comes to get my breakfast. Granny carefully scuffed over the remains of the fire. When shall we three meet again, she said. Hmm? The witches looked at one another sheepishly. I'm a bit busy next month, said Nanny. Birthdays and such. Um, and the work has really been piling up with all this hurly-burly, you know. And there's all the ghosts to think about. I thought you sent them back to the castle, said Granny. Well, they didn't want to go, said Nanny vaguely. To be honest, I've got used to them around the place. They're company of an evening. They hardly scream at all now. That's nice, said Granny. What about you, McGrath? There always seems to be such a lot to do at this time of year, don't you find? Said McGrath. Quite, said Granny Weatherwax pleasantly. It's no good getting yourself tied down to appointments all the time, is it? Let's just leave the whole question open, shall we? They nodded. And as the new day wound across the landscape, each one busy with her own thoughts, each one a witch alone, they went home. There is a school of thought that says that witches and wizards can never go home. They went, though, just the same.
That is the End of Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett. And it was read by Celia Imrie.